0: I firmly believe that I would not know what wellness is had I not lived in Medellin, Colombia for three years. I would not know what it's like to be intentional about my health and have peace about that. I would not know what it's like to be financially strengthened and be able to walk through life in abundance, I would not know what it's like to have desires and be intentional about chasing those desires had I not lived abroad. Because when you are in an environment and you're in a culture that perpetuates nonstop hustle, that perpetuates fatigue, that perpetuates unspoken sadness and depression that perpetuates, put yourself last because you don't matter, that perpetuates all of the isms that weigh on many people, in particular women, that perpetuates this notion that you don't have a voice and you don't matter, you don't know better. It's all you see and it's normalized.
1: welcome to flourish in the foreign an award-winning podcast that celebrates elevates and affirms the voices and stories of black women living and thriving abroad while exploring living abroad as a pathway to wellness i'm your host christine Job, a black american woman with trinidadian roots podcaster, business strategist, and entrepreneur based in Valencia, Spain. Hey everyone, welcome to Flourish in the Foreign, I'm Christine, your host. I'm so happy that you're here. If you're new to the podcast, welcome, welcome to Flourish in the Foreign. Thank you so much for dropping in for this week's episode. A couple of things before we get started today. One, if you have not subscribed to the Flourish in the Foreign YouTube channel, why don't you go ahead and pause this podcast right now and subscribe to the YouTube channel. I'm trying to get our YouTube channel to 1,000 subscribers, we are close, but I really feel like we should be there already. I mean, I'm just being honest. I feel like we should be there already. So go ahead and support this podcast by subscribing to the YouTube channel. Once we get to 1,000 subscribers, I'm going to ask y'all what y'all want me to talk about, and um, then I'm going to make a video and talk about that, Okay. So go ahead and subscribe to Flourish the Ford YouTube channel. The next thing is that if you have a burning question about moving abroad, living abroad, thriving abroad, life in Spain, past podcast guests, working abroad, building a business abroad, or anything else to do with this here podcast, Now is the time to ask me a question. Yes, ask me a question. You can go to the description of this episode, click on the ask me a question link and drop your question there. You can slide in my DMs, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and ask your question. You can reply to one of my emails that I send out and ask your question. This is in preparation for the 100th episode of Flourish in the Foreign. I cannot believe it, but we're here. So I want to do this for all of y'all because I get a lot of questions. So this is your, this is your chance. (laughs) Ask me the question here so I can answer it for sure. So go ahead and do that. And of course, this is a labor of love, but labor nonetheless. Make sure that you are supporting this Black Woman solo and indie podcast. You can go to buymeacoffee.com slash flourish foreign and buy me a coffee or purchase an item off the podcast wish list. You can also support the podcast by, again, subscribing to our YouTube channel. Go ahead to Flourish the Foreign on YouTube and subscribe to the YouTube channel. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Flourish Foreign. And of course, share this podcast with all your friends, all your family, and all the colleagues that you actually like, okay? It means so much to me and it really makes a huge difference. I am so deeply appreciative of all of your love and support. Please believe that, all right? On to the next episode. (music) Season 4, Episode 10. Today we have Elizabeth, who is a former employment litigator who currently works as a leader in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. She is passionate about helping women manage life through conflict resolution and negotiation skills, and she has taught women worldwide how to flex their courage muscle in negotiations, whether at work, in business, or in relationships. She is a proud first-generation American, and she lived in Medellin, Colombia, for three years with her husband and two children before repatriating to the Washington, D.C. area in spring of 2022. This was such a rich conversation, ranging from being first-generation in the United States to career development to deciding to take that leap and go abroad, and what is the cost-benefit analysis to make such a drastic change, not only for herself, but for her family, and what it was like for her to go abroad with a special needs child, and of course, how she is dealing with repatriating back to the United States. It's a great conversation, and I'm going to let Elizabeth tell you all about it.
0: My name is Elizabeth. I am 39 years old. I have lived abroad for three years, and I'm currently based in the Washington DC area. So I am a very proud first generation American. I like to say that I'm a proud first-generation American because often in the media in the United States, there's a lot of negativity around immigration. But I am very proud to say that I'm a first-generation American. My parents are originally from Haiti, and I grew up in the South Florida area, specifically Fort Lauderdale, which is about 30 to 45 minutes north of Miami. And as a child, I had the privilege, and I use that word intentionally, I had the privilege of growing up around people from literally all over the world. People from the Caribbean. I grew up around Jamaicans, Trinidadians, Haitians, of course, Cubans, Puerto Ricans, people from South America, Colombians. It, it just—it was a wonderful experience, and I think that experience made me even more curious about people. I want to know about them. I want to know their stories. Etc. But as a child, being able to smell different smells of food, being able to hear different accents, different inflections, it was just a wonderful way of growing up because although we didn't grow up with a lot of means, we didn't travel. We didn't even travel around the United States. We've, we never took a family vacation, to be honest with you. I still had a front row seat to seeing the world through a lens that many people don't see it, a lens of different cultures, different languages, different accents, different expressions. And it just made me even more curious as I continue to grow and walk through life. It made me even more curious.
1: So Elizabeth had an opportunity to study abroad in Valencia, Spain, the city where I actually studied abroad like 15 years ago, and the city that I currently reside in. So I asked her to describe her experience studying here in Valencia.
0: So I went to Florida State University. I stayed in the state of Florida. I wanted to keep my state scholarship. So I studied at Florida State University. And my junior year, it was my last year because I graduated in three years. I knew it was going to be essentially my last year, my last semester coming up. I heard about studying abroad and I thought that seems like a cool opportunity. I don't know if I want to do it, do this particularly because I don't want to take on any debt. I'm not sure. And let me let me just learn about the program. So I sat in the room. They did a pre-orientation, if you will, to just tell us about the opportunity. And they showed pictures of Valencia. And I was like, I need to be in Valencia, Spain. That's what I need to do for my life. I need to study abroad. It looks amazing. And they just talked about what it's like to be outside of the United States. And if you've ever been a person who has never traveled outside of the United States, the level of information, the level of difference that comes through even a PowerPoint presentation is palpable. So for me, that was the first thing that, that, that took my attention. It struck me. The second thing was the fact that of the three people that were entered, that provided information, one person was black. And it was exciting to see that because he provided information about his experience. He didn't say, oh, I'm a black man living abroad. and This is what I do. He just talked about the program, but we continue to lock eyes with each other. Now this is not gonna get romantic or anything like that, but as the only two black people in the room, it was just wonderful to learn about the prospect of being in a different country and also to see yourself represented. And so I was hooked. I knew immediately, I wanted to go to Spain. I wanted to travel. I didn't do the 12-week program. I did the six-week program, and I was there. This was many year, many moons ago, many moons ago, but it was wonderful because while I was there, I had an opportunity to enhance my language skills. That's something that I absolutely wanted to do. I had an opportunity to learn about some of the issues with people who are marginalized there, such as the gypsies. I learned more about what it's like to be a woman in a different culture, a young woman, a woman that's growing up. I believe at the time I was 22 years old, 21 or 22 years old. And it was just an experience that I, I said to myself, this is something that I want to continue, not just here in college, but beyond. And I must do it. And I did.
1: So Elizabeth has this life-affirming, life-changing experience of study abroad. And so I asked her, what did she get up to once she returned stateside?
0: When I got back, I I remember there was a whole situation because... I studied my last semester, I was supposed to graduate, my plane never took off, there were all these mechanical issues. I never walked at college graduation. I got stuck in the country for another week, I was devastated I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not gonna walk and it was a whole thing. But interestingly enough, when I returned to the United States, despite the fact that I never had the experience of doing cap and gown and pulling the tassel to the other side, and throw, I never had that experience for undergrad. But when I got back, I felt as though I graduated. I felt more mature. The world looked different. I remember specifically walking into one of the grocery stores and feeling very overwhelmed because everything was so big and massive. I had dang near a panic attack. I was like, what is why is everything so large? Why are these carts so large? Why is this carton of milk so low? Why do we need so much? Why are these cars so massive? It was just overwhelming. But I found myself, despite the overwhelm and despite experiencing the differences of knowing that I had been in the United States for 21, 22 years, and I've only been in Spain for six weeks. I did feel changed. I felt like my brain was different. I felt like my personality was starting to shift in the best way. I became even more curious about the world and curious about people. I picked up different languages in a different way. As someone who grew up hearing Haitian Creole my whole life and reading the Bible in French and things of that nature, I was even more attuned to different accents than I was before. And I just felt, I felt that the world got bigger and smaller at the same time. I felt a deep sense of gratitude. I felt that I was, I didn't realize it at the time, but now looking back, becoming much more empathetic to understanding that there are different plights and different perspectives in the way that people see and do life. It just changed me. It changed me to my core. It rocked my my, my psyche, if you will. And I just wanted to know more and see more. And I thought to myself, the world is bigger than Florida, right? People always talk about the state of Florida and Florida man. And I was like, the world is so much bigger than Florida. I've got to see it. I have to see it. There's nothing stopping me, but myself at this point, after undergrad, I worked for about a year. The whole time I was plotting my escape. I was like, I've got to find a way to, to get up and out of the United States. I then went to law school. And getting a law degree is a very peculiar experience because they're very formulaic in the way that they want to shape your brain. And you have to remember, on I was on the heels, on the cusp of coming back from a country, working a full-time job for the first time, and then entering into a very unique phase of my life of wanting to be a lawyer, wanting to be an international economic development lawyer. I wanted to help people. I wanted to be abroad. I wanted to find a way to use my law degree. And even while I was in law school, I kept thinking to myself, there has to be yet another study abroad program. And that's what I did. So I found an opportunity to study abroad yet again while I was in law school. And I spent six months in England my last year in law school.
1: So I asked her about her experience studying in London while in law school.
0: So what's interesting about my time in London is that we stayed in central, central London. So central London is, it's a more expensive area. It's an area that there are a number of well-to-do people. I'll say that. I didn't see many people look like me while I was in in London initially, my first two weeks there. And I felt the need to connect with somebody, anybody black. I was like, I gotta see some blackness around here. I know there are Jamaicans here. I know there are people from the Caribbean. And then I heard about about the Caribbean festival that was gonna happen. I was like, yeah, I need to be with my people. Like I'm in another country, but I still wanna find my people. And I traveled to Brixton. I remember specifically getting off the train, walking, getting into Brixton and feeling like I was home. I was like, this is comfortable. This feels good. I hear accents. I see flags. I see people around. I saw women in hijabs. I saw women that represented many parts of the diaspora. It felt good to me. It was comfortable. I was like, this is great. This is nice. I had a wonderful experience there. When got my hair done, <laughs> found a salon, you know, I had the whole experience there. When I returned back to Central London, I specifically remember telling the program coordinator that I went to Brixton and the look of dread and shock and dismay on her face. And she was like, Who did you go with? And I said, I went by myself. I figured out how to get there. I went, I had a good time, went and got my hair done, and it was wonderful. And she basically told me, do not go back to Brixton. Now, she obviously could not say, don't go back to Brixton because it's filled with black and brown people. She obviously couldn't say that, but that's what she meant. And she essentially reminded me that you are here. You're studying at the University of London, which is this very prestigious institution. You are here to just be in an environment that exudes excellence. And it is not going to be in Brixton. It is not going to be around black and brown people. And that really hurt me. That really hurt me because it reminded me of a lot of the experiences that I as a black woman experience in the United States. It reminded me that even though you may feel comfortable and confident or even competent in the way that you want to carry yourself, the way that you are presenting yourself as someone who is educated, that is getting a law degree, et cetera, fill in the blank, that you are still Black and Black is less than. And that really stayed with me, even to this day, that that has stayed with me because it shaped and informed a lot of the work that I do professionally to this day. But despite that experience, despite the fact that she attempted to marginalize me and to essentially say, find separation, remove yourself, do not do the Black thing, et cetera. I still had a wonderful time in London because it still was an environment where I wanted to learn about the history of that particular country. I wanted to learn about the history of Black and brown people there. I specifically studied U.S. and U.K. comparative law while I was there for that semester. And I had an opportunity to intern with the International Institute of Sustainable Development, that location particularly, not Geneva. And so for me, it was still a great experience. It was still an eye-opening experience. It gave me a lot of the tools that I'm still using today. And it made me even more hyper-aware of my Blackness because the UK and the United States, although they're very different, racism still shows up racism shows up in a very different way. It's very subtle in the UK. Someone may not call you the N-word, right? Someone may not yell, you're an N-word, or call you a black bee, fill in the blank, but they may not put money in your hand, right? They may toss and that happened to me. They may toss it across the counter and walk away. So it, it was a stark reminder that despite the fact that you're getting a law degree, despite that you're having this advanced experience, despite the fact that this is actually a privileged experience, You're still black and people don't let you forget that. And the weight and the hyper-awareness of blackness, it's heavy and it weighs on your psyche. It weighs on your heart. You don't even recognize it half the time. At the end of the week, I would find myself, particularly in London, despite many of the good experiences, I would find myself exhausted. I'm like, why am I so tired? Why am I so physically tired? I just want to lay up in this bed and watch this BC4, whatever it is, right? The awareness now in my more mature, more aware state, I now understand that there was this mental and emotional fatigue and emotional tax that I was carrying because of my blackness, even while I was in the United Kingdom.
1: I was really curious about Elizabeth's journey to living abroad, graduating from law school to living in Medellin, Colombia. So I asked her to walk us through her journey to move abroad, her journey to living abroad.
0: One of the interesting things, (laughs) one of the interesting things is that I was dating then boyfriend, now husband. I was dating my boyfriend. And when I was living abroad He was like, I want to come and travel. And I was like, "Uh uh-uh, you stay right where you are because I'm living my best life. I have this internship. I want to have this amazing, fun experience. And I want to know what that looks like. Who knows? I love you and you love me, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I want to be in love in the United States. So I want I want to just be far away. But when I got done with my internship and I had to return to United States because of visas and all the other issues that that arise when you're living in a different country, I returned. I graduated from law school and on graduation, he proposed. And so I said, yes, (laughs) of course, I said yes. But as as I was planning the wedding and studying for the bar, I thought to myself, this is all good and well, but I really, I really, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be in this country. I don't want to be in this state. So what can we do to think about Us having a flourishing life outside of the United States, what are the things that we can really think about? How can we make this happen? So we looked at different programs together. We looked at doing Peace Corps. We looked at him doing teaching abroad in Mongolia. I was pulling out all the stops. I was on Google like every other weekend, really trying to figure out what makes the most sense and nothing stuck. I couldn't, we went to the orientation for Peace Corps. It didn't feel right. We looked into the different programs of teaching abroad in Mongolia and China and different parts of Asia. It didn't feel right. And I was just like, something is not there just yet. And one of the things that I am I appreciate even in my youth is that I don't like to force. I don't like to try to make things stick just because. Rather, sometimes you just have to allow life To be life and take you in a direction if it makes sense for you to go with intentionality so i decided to put it on the back burner despite the fact that we talked about it took the bar decided that i would get into some type of work that would help people ended up doing employment litigation for a little bit and in miami in particular and then we got pregnant we got pregnant i had my son found another job relocated to central florida and the three of us were there as a family, but the conversation kept coming up. I felt it in my heart. I wanted to do it. He wanted to do it. He's also a first-generation American, half Jamaican and half Ivorian. So he also understood and appreciated what it's like to be in different parts of the world, have family in different parts of the world, and be find yourself represented outside of the United States. So we would talk about it, we we'll would come up over dinner, it we'll would come up idyllically, we would have conversations, etc. But beyond that, we didn't take any action. We just never took any action. My son got diagnosed with being on the spectrum. That was a blow to me, my, my motherhood. It was a lot to emotionally and mentally manage. And so the focus was: let's get our son all the support and services that he needs, let's thrive as a family, let's do the best that we can while we're here in the United States, in Orlando, Florida, purchased a home. We did all the typical American things, right? So it's have a kid, work your nine to five, Buy a house, etc. So those are the things that we committed to. Life took us in that direction, and we committed to it, but it was something that we always wanted to do as far as living abroad. It's something that we kept on the back burner. We didn't put that fire out. It just essentially was something we would just it was just a topic of conversation. So eventually, I got pregnant again. I had my daughter, and while I was on maternity leave, I was like, "I got to get out of this country. I must leave this country. I have to do something to get out of the United States. For some reason, having my daughter, knowing that I was going to be raising a Black son in the United States with all of the chaos that was happening in the United States, and still happens, and then having a a daughter and recognizing that raising a Black daughter was also going to be a very nuanced and particular experience. I was like, we can't be here. We cannot stay here. We must leave. So as I was on maternity leave, I was planning on returning back to work. At the time, I was already with the company five years, that same company that relocated me from Fort Lauderdale to Central Florida. And then I said to myself, you know what, maybe what I can do is really think about how to negotiate a stepped return Back to work instead of just having my 90 days and going back to work one, two, three. Maybe I can really find a way to think about what makes sense for me. What makes sense for my wellness? What would work for my new family that has now grown with an extra person and a baby? How do I return in a way that's going to allow me much more time and much more emotional and mental freedom? So instead of me going back to work full time, I essentially negotiated with my manager that I would return for six weeks. Two days a week, then an additional four weeks, three days a week, and then I would go back full time. So, again, instead of going back 90 days immediately full time, I went back two days, three days, and then five days. That would allow me to slowly re ingratiate myself into work and find an opportunity to do things in a more transitional phase. And that's what I did. And I did it while working remotely. This was 2018. So it's 2018. I have this brand new baby, this beautiful black princess, if you will. And it was 2018. And I said, why should I go back into the office? I can work remotely. In fact, not only is it better for me, it's saving me money. I can be much more relaxed. I don't have to deal with people coming into my office, pouring out their whole life story to me. This feels good. This feels natural. So in 2018, I went 100% remote because I cascaded myself into work by, again, re-ingratiating myself in a way that made sense for my life at that time. And because I was working remotely six months into returning full-time, I said to myself, if I can work remotely in a city that I hate this city, why am I in Orlando, Florida? I don't want to be here. Why can't I work remotely anywhere else in the world? And that was in 2018. So after returning back to work and doing a stellar job, I then had a conversation with that same manager. And what I said to him was, let's say his name is Steve. I said, Steve, you and I know that I do a really good job as an in-house counsel. I am doing a kick-ass job. I think I'm one of your top lawyers here. I'm doing it all remotely remotely. One of the things that has always been a passion of mine is to work abroad. I want to do international law. I want to be abroad in a way that really is going to drive excellence for this company, but also allows me to be the employee that I want to be, the woman that I want to be, the mother that I want to be, the wife that I want to be, all letter E, all of the above. So he was a bit skittish about it. He was like, I don't know how I would feel about that. I don't know if our leader would like that, et cetera. I said, look, if it's up to me, I'm happy to go and talk to the leader. You tell me what I need to do. And the reason why that's very important is because what I recognize is that as women in particular, and let's go ahead and go a little deeper as black women, we naturally, many of us naturally have the skill to really resolve conflict and negotiate. But what ends up happening is that we psych ourselves out. We tell ourselves, no, we catastrophize the situation. We think worst case scenario. We think if I ask this, they're going to take this away from me, et cetera, et cetera. And we often lead with lack instead of leading with abundance. But I decided in that moment, Liz, You're going to lead with abundance. You're going to be very clear on what it is that you want. And you're going to speak up. You're going to use your words. And if it doesn't go well, you're going to process that. You're going to see what that feels like but that's not going to be your one time. You're going to pick yourself back up and you're going to keep going. And that's what I did. So it wasn't a one-time conversation. I had to have multiple conversations. I didn't press. I didn't nag. I wasn't nasty. I wasn't demanding. I wasn't entitled about it. But what I did was I made a case for myself. I re-emphasized the fact that I was a good employee. I re-emphasized the fact that I was loyal to the clients. I re-emphasized the fact that I don't have to be here because the market is hot at that time. The market was hot. And so what I did was I took some time to reinforce my negotiation skills with research. So I went back and I did some research. I looked at because it was a global company. I looked at every single location where we had an office. We had an office in Madrid, we had an office in Bogota, Colombia, we had an office in Mexico City, etc. I looked at all of the locations and then I specifically started to redline and say I don't want to be there. I'm not sure if I want to be here. This may make sense this time zone may impact me, may impact my ability to communicate with family in the United States, and it may impact my clients. I took a very realistic perspective and view on what could actually happen to find out the tangibility of me moving abroad. And oddly enough, when all of that stuff was happening in the background professionally, my husband got in contact with one of his close friends just randomly. He hadn't talked to this guy in years, like seven years got in contact with him and the guys, yeah, I'm living in Medellin, Colombia right now. Like, what do you mean you're living in Medellin, Colombia? Like, yeah, not about that US life no more. We live in Medellin, Colombia. And so Ainge, my husband, had this conversation, came back to me. He's like, you wouldn't believe who's living abroad. So and so, and I was like, "Get out! What, what are they doing? How are they doing it? What are they? They're working remote." And I'm like, "I work remote, and I'm trying to be abroad." So let's think about this. He hopped on a plane. My husband hopped on a plane. He said, "I'm just gonna go check it out. Let's go. I'm gonna just go for a week." I said, "Okay, you go." He went for a week. Not even a week. He went for four days. And he called me. He said, "I love it. It's great. Let's go." And that was it. We put our house up for rent. We found a tenant. We sold everything in the house. We found a school. I told my manager, look, this is where I would like to be. He said, let's go ahead and do a trial run. I see you're serious about this. He said, let's do a six month trial run. If it works, great. If it doesn't work, you'll come on back. I said, that's fine. I know I'm a citizen of the United States. I can always come back if I need to. And that was it.
1: Hey everyone, I hope you're enjoying this episode of Flourish in the Foreign, and if you are, be sure to support this podcast by going to buymeacoffee.com slash and buying me a coffee. You can also write a review of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, and anywhere else you listen to the show. Thank you so much for listening and supporting. Now, back to the episode. I asked Elizabeth, what were her family's reactions to move out of the United States and to Colombia?
0: So with my family, it wasn't surprising to them that I wanted to move abroad. It wasn't surprising. The moment that I returned from Valencia, España, I immediately was like, we got to go abroad. We got to, let's pack our stuff. United States is not the only country. Let's go. And my mom would be like, as someone who entered into the United States for opportunity, who left her home country of Haiti, which is a very poor country. And she was a very poor girl. And she had a son, my my brother, very early on a, a, at a young age, Leaving United States was not an option for her, but she recognized that it's something that I love to do, something that I wanted to do, and that something that I could not shut up about. And so when I told my parents that we were thinking about moving abroad, my my mom's response was like, "Zah, why? Why, Za, why? Everything, you have a good job. Zaw. Everything became about the job. She said, you have a good job. And I was like, I know I have a good job, but I want a good life. It's not just, my life is not my job. Like life does not equal work. Like I want a good life and I'm not happy in Orlando, Florida. I don't want to be here. I don't like it, but you just bought a house. Why, Za? She could not. Fathom, but then she resolved that okay, you're gonna do what you want to do regardless. My father was like, Go, do go wherever you need to go and leave and have a great time, just go and live your life. You can always come back if it's awful. So, when we finally decided that we we're gonna be in Medellin, Colombia, I picked up the phone, I told everyone this is what we've decided. We decided that we're going to be here. We They have great medical care. The first question is, is it safe? Everyone's thinking of narcos in the 80s. And it's like, is it, is it safe? And I'm like, are you safe? Have you been watching the news? People are shooting up in the streets of the United States for no reason. Like I, I'm pretty sure that things are much more safer, and they are. And it was just so fascinating because we had the date, we booked the tickets, we booked our one-way. And I was just like, Profusely sweating, and I'm not a sweater. So I was just like, What am I doing? This is not a study abroad, Liz. This isn't, I'm going to go for six weeks. I'm going to go for six months and come back. Like, this is permanent. You are leaving. What if you don't come back? I started to again catastrophize the situation. I was like, What if you go? And what if you never see your family and friends anymore? What if there's a a riot? What if you get caught up in a riot? What if they don't like black people? Like, what all of this stuff. I kept thinking about all these different things. Worst case scenario.
1: I asked Elizabeth to walk us through her day of departure from the United States to the day her and her family arrived in Medellin, Colombia, not to visit, but to live.
0: And when it got time to that day, we had eight bags packed. The house was completely empty. We called an Uber to come and pick us up. We got to the airport. My, my anxiety was off the chain. I was a nervous wreck. My stomach was flipping. My daughter had just turned one years old. My son was five. And I was just like, what am I doing? This is madness. It's 2019. What am I doing? And I got to the airport and then I felt peace. I suddenly felt peace. I felt great. I saw people doing their regular traveling, and I was just like, I am doing something that I've planned, that I've desired, that has stayed with me, and it's coming to fruition finally, and I'm excited about it. I felt peace. I still was a little nervous, but I wasn't as anxious. I really did feel peace about it. We get on the, the plane, lands, and all of a sudden, my anxiety, it just goes right back up because once you land... You're hearing all this inspiring and they're just giving the announcements. And I'm like, what if we fail? What if I started thinking about all these things? I kept it all inside because I didn't want to make anyone nervous. I was like, what if we fail? What if it doesn't go right? What if what if we hate it? And I just remember saying, calm, peace, relax. It's gonna be okay. It's, you're on a journey and the journey is going to have a lot of bumps and potholes and all kinds of things that happen. It's okay. And the peace returned to me. And it was just great. It was exhilarating. At first, I thought it was fear and scary, but it was exhilarating knowing that this is something that we had really wanted, that we had planned, that we've talked about. And we finally did it. And we took two little people with us, which doesn't often happen.
1: I asked Elizabeth to walk us through the ups and downs of her first year in Medellin, Colombia with her family.
0: The first year of living in Medellin was incredible. It was incredible because we moved there before the pandemic and it was so much fun because it was new sights and smells and accents and learning, deepening Spanish and learning Spanish and seeing my children speak Spanish, which was incredible. And my son, again, being high functioning autistic, that was a concern that many of my family members had. What are you going to do about services? And I would remind them and say, autism doesn't have borders autism is not just in the United States we are going to be intentional and vigilant and diligent to make sure that we get services for my son and that's what we did he did speech therapy in Spanish he did occupational therapy in Spanish he's now fluent in two languages so the first year was it was insightful it was amazing it was fun at the end of the first year that's when the pandemic hit it was March 2020 everyone remembers. And it, it it turned into something that was rejuvenating and fun and filled with joy into something that was filled with anxiety and fear. And my community was broken up because of that, because many people that I affiliated with and hung out with were Black American women who returned to the United States because they didn't know what the world what was gonna happen in the world and what the world would look like. So then it became lonely for a long time because Colombia changed, Medellin changed. Colombia did everything that it needed to do. To manage the pandemic, and they did an amazing job. For the first three months, there were only four deaths that we were watching. We didn't see people protesting in the street and debating about masks and all the things that we were watching via Facebook and all the drama that was happening in the United States. So things were chaotic, yet at the same time, despite the chaos and despite the fact that this treasure trove of wellness and goodness. I felt like was being quickly stripped away. There still was a sense of peace because I had two roads in front of me at the time. I could stay in Medellin, Colombia and just watch things unfold as necessary, or I could return to the United States. And we opted to stay. And we opted to stay for the reasons that we opted to originally leave because we found that, again, Despite the pandemic, there are still additional weights that black and brown people have to carry in the United States. There are still additional considerations and things financially. For example, United States is an expensive country. A lot of people don't realize that until they're not here. The fact that quality of food is something that's very important to me and my family as a part of our wellness we knew that we could still be in an environment and still have high quality foods despite the pandemic. We knew that we could be in an environment and have access to top tier doctors where we actually controlled our health and we could provide information and inform the doctor, um, have access to our records without any pushback, et cetera. A lot of things that you don't realize actually weighs on you when you don't have access to information, access to certain rights, the ability to exercise certain rights. And so it's for those reasons, we really sat and did a pro cons analysis and thought about what would make the most sense for us as a family, understanding that that this pandemic was the first of its kind in our lifetime. And also recognizing that although the treasure trove was being stripped away that it could possibly return and be as great or still be great in a new way, we opted to stay in Medellin. And it was a good decision.
1: I asked Elizabeth, how does she prepare her children for the move to Medellin?
0: My son was five years old at the time. And what we explained to him was we said, hey, we're getting ready to move to another country. And because of his neurodivergence, we wanted to be very intentional. Again, he has ASD and ADHD. So we had to be very particular and intentional to make sure that he understood the gravity of us moving. So we would show him pictures. We would talk about the country. My husband would explain what his trip was like. He talked about what things could be like for him, et cetera. And we also told him that this is an opportunity for him to learn how to understand different cultures, which is going to help him be a better person, a better man, a better individual, etc. And so in preparation of that, we would regularly sit with him and hype it up. Honestly, we would say, are you excited? Are you, we're going to get ready to go. Here are some things that we're going to do. Here's some foods that we're going to eat. Are you excited about this? Because of his speech delay, he couldn't fully express. And also because of his neurodivergence, he often didn't express and couldn't fully express or ask some questions that he would have. And we knew that he was trying and we knew that he was curious, but that was our goal. Our goal was for him to become curious and stay curious because- when you take a position of a learner, you have to lead with curiosity. And because he showed that he was going to be curi- that he was curious and was going to stay curious, we knew that it was going to be good while he was there. My daughter, she had just turned one. She was babbling. She was crawling. So she had no choice but to come along. I was like, "Come on, little girl, we're going." And so for her, although she was one years old, I would tell her like, "Oh, it's going to be so much fun. You're going to have." friends to play with that speak Spanish. And what I was most excited about was the idea of having hired help, having real true hired help. And I would say to myself, you're going to have an empleada and it's going to be wonderful. And she's going to take care of you. And then mommy can also rest because a stressed out mother is not a good mother, a tired, anxious, overwhelmed mother, parent, et cetera, caregiver. Is you can't show up as your best self. And I wanted to show up as my best self for myself and also for my children. So when we arrived, the way we selected the schools was a couple of ways. One, we were thinking about what makes the most sense. What are the options? We looked at what the options were in Colombia. In Colombia, you can go to a private institution, you can go to a public institution, and then they have hybrid type private public institution. The public institutions are primarily for people that are in the poor communities. The private institutions, honestly, were the only things that were available in the community that we finally settled in. Interestingly enough, being from the United States, we're not used to a class-based system. Medellin, in many respects, it's still a class-based system. So depending on the community and the area that you live in, the options Aren't many for you. So, for us, given that we were living in Poblado, which is the richest area in Medellin, Colombia, given that we were living there, we had no choice but to put our child in a private school. The concern that we had was whether or not we would be able to ingratiate him into this environment where he probably was going to be the only Black child. And that actually was the case many a times. What we would do is we would go and we would tour the schools. And we would tell them specifically that this is our son. Here's his neurodivergence. Here are the things that you need to know about him. And this is also important. And the final, this was his culture, who he was, and the fact that He likely is going to look different from the other kids, not because it would have been a thing for him, but it likely would have been a thing for the other children. And we did have an instance where there was a child that drew a picture of him and drew a picture of the child next to him and made it very clear that, oh, this is my friend, but this is my black friend. This is my black friend. And I was like, wait a minute now, wait a, hold on, wait a minute. What is, what, what's going on? What I thought was going to be a big situation was actually a big learning opportunity for me because what I discovered for many Colombians, particularly for many people who are from the region, which are known as paisas, for many paisas, saying that someone is black is not talking about them in a negative way. It's like talking about your hair color. It's like saying, I have black hair, blue eyes, and black skin. I'm wearing a red shirt. I have natural hair and black skin. So for them it's a descriptor. And that was a very interesting experience for me because it also made me realize that I was leading as someone from the United States who has experienced microaggressions, racism and the weight of blackness in Colombia, right? And so I was I found myself doing a lot of the things that I would actually advise people not to do. Instead of me being curious and instead of me trying to understand culturally why this little boy drew a picture and said, This is my Black friend, I went in there and said, Here's what we're not gonna do. You're not going to reinforce and highlight the fact that being Black is negative. And then it was, Oh no, no one said anything about that. In fact, let us teach you how we show children information and help them to learn about differences. And it is completely different. Although Medellin and Colombia in particular, they don't have a Black History Month, they do talk about culture. They do talk about their history. They have the children dress up on weeks and days to reemphasize how they originally came from a farming community, etc. cetera. So my inability in that time because of my experience of being a black woman in the United States caused me to not lead with curiosity. The same thing I would tell, to always lead with cure. I did not in that moment lead with curiosity. Instead, I lived with trauma. And that resulted in one, me being very embarrassed, honestly, me being very embarrassed. And two, me recognizing that I have yet more to learn. Although I've been here for some time, I have yet more to learn. So for my children, although I'm now teaching them, I verbally tell them, lead with curiosity. I have to demonstrate that. I have to show that because being Black in Medellin, Colombia was a very different experience than being Black in the United States, than being Black in... United Kingdom, than being Black in Valencia, España. It's a very nuanced experience. And I'm actually very thankful that my son had that experience because had he not had that experience, he would have not learned. We would have not had a teachable moment. I think the teachers, was they were also able to learn and learn more about why this was a thing for me. And also, it just helped to bridge a lot of the communication gaps respective to what the expectations are as a parent when you're teaching a child who's from a different country, who looks different from other children.
1: I asked Elizabeth, how has being abroad influenced her motherhood, her concept of motherhood, her identity within motherhood and her practice of motherhood?
0: My motherhood absolutely evolved When I was in the United States as a mother of two, even when I just had my son, I was high-stressed all the time, and I found myself being stern, sometimes unnecessarily so. I found myself snapping on my children. I found myself over-policing, I will say that, over-policing my son and putting restrictions on him in part because I didn't want him to grow up and do things that could be misinterpreted that could cause him to lose his life. I didn't want there to be instances where if he's having a bad moment in school, it isn't, oh, the child is having a bad moment. It's, oh, that black boy is causing trouble. And because I am a black woman that works in corporate America that particularly fights for Black and brown people, it's not only that I've experienced this, I know that people experience it. I know that mothers have to be very vigilant. And I know that there's often toxicity that leads in classrooms as well. There are some biases that people don't check at the door when they go into the classroom and that they teach their students I have situations that I recall quite specifically that in Central Florida, that teachers have said things and made assumptions about my son and about me in a way that is very denigrating. And so I found myself over-policing my son. I found myself always stressed out. I found myself deeply unhappy as a mother, I found myself constantly comparing how I was mothering to how other people should be mothering, et cetera. And I knew that I had a lot of work to do. I just didn't know where to start. And so when I got to Medellin, Colombia, one of the things that was absolutely amazing that I looked forward to was the ability to have that hired help. And that was one of the first things on my list. I was like, I need hired help. I've got to help. I got to get some help so that I can help myself and help my children. And when I had that hired help, I felt very uncomfortable with it at first. I felt very uncomfortable because it's such a foreign concept in the United States that you would have somebody come in your house to cook your food, to clean your house, and to help raise your children. It's very foreign. But what I recognize is, one, it's a part of the system in Colombia. Domestic work, domestic help has a lot of history. There are a lot of women who do it intentionally because it's a profession. There are a lot of laws and rights that these individuals have. And there are whole systems of protection for these people because it's a respected profession. That's the first thing. Second thing is it highlighted to me that we don't do community as well as we used to in the United States or as well as we can. When you are a mother and when you have children, they always say, get community, make sure you get people that will have your back. It's okay that the house is dirty. It's okay that you know you haven't cooked any food. Just order in it'll be fine. So you get this rhetoric and you get all these reinforcements verbally, but they actually do not happen. So when I was living in the United States, what I found is that my level of sadness was quickly turning into depression. My depression was in a was causing me to be literally immobile to the point that I couldn't even. Get up. I didn't have any desire to get up and to be and to mother and to show up in the way that my son needed me to. And because of that, when I had the hired help and when I was able to have respite and be able to say, you know what, I'm going to go to the gym and take care of myself and not feel guilty about it. I'm going to go and book a massage because I've worked a long week and I'm tired and not worry about the safety of my children or feel shame about it. I'm going to be able to wake up and have a cooked meal available for me so that I can spring into action and show up in a way that I need to show up and not feel embarrassed about it. Being able to have those opportunities Was so eye opening to me because when I returned to the United States to have a visit, just wanted to visit my mom, I was like, I wanna go and check my mom out. Let me fly into Miami. When I flew into the airport, what I noticed in Colombia was a lot of intentional mothering. I observed this and I saw how the women who were mothers showed up for their children, how there was intentional touching, loving caressing, soft words being spoken to their children. And then when I landed, I saw the complete opposite and I saw it and I saw myself in it. And that was a mirror to me because I recognized, wow, that's how I showed up when I lived in the United States. And that's how I often show up when I'm stressed. And it made me recognize that A lot of mothers in the United States, we are hyper-stressed and we don't even know it. We may say, yeah, I'm so stressed out. Yeah, this has been such a tough week. Yeah, I gotta take the kids over here and take the kids over there. But the way we are even interacting with our children, with our partners, the way that we are even responding to ourselves indicates that we aren't just stressed out, we are traumatized. And so for me, my motherhood was shaped and positively reinforced in such a way because having high, it's shocking. Having hired help was an eye opening experience for me because it made me realize that yes, my children are absolutely important. I'm important as well. Yes, my children have to eat healthy. I got to make sure I'm eating healthy as well. Yes, my children should absolutely have activities where they're being nurtured and that they learn and there's edification there what about me being able to do that? How about being able to wake up and be excited about the day instead of waking up and dreading the day before me? And that was the experience that I had in the United States. And it was day and night. It was day and night. And I often take solace in knowing that despite my original discomfort with having hired help, that it was the right thing for me to do in that season and I will absolutely do it again. And not only would I absolutely do it again, I tell people, if you are moving abroad and they already have a system set up so that you can be supported, get the support, put your cape away. You don't have to be Wonder Woman. You don't have to be Wonder Mom. You don't have to be the the Black Queen that does all the work. Go and take solace and recognize that it is okay and you should. Because you don't want, again, the emotional tax and the weight of wanting to be everything to everyone, causing you to be nothing to yourself. Mothering in the United States is an exhausting, lonely experience. And I think it's like that because we have a very individualistic culture, grow your, grow, make your money, grow your life, grow your business. Grow. We are all about self. We're all about individual. We have books that teach us how to grind it out and get it done. We have, here are the seven habits that you absolutely must do. We have so much content and material that reinforces things that result in sadness and we don't even realize it. So we take these concepts that may work here. We bring them into certain communities. We bring them into ourselves and we bring them into our mothering. And while we're trying to figure out how to mother, what's the right way? Am I doing this right? We're dealing with the weight and the emotional tax and we're dealing with all these different things. We're dealing with it alone because we don't even know how to speak up. We don't know how to language it. We don't know that we may need therapy. We don't know that we may need a really good, ugly cry. We don't know that we can say, I love my child, but I don't like this right now. We are forbidden for being honest. And because we can't walk in honesty and being truthful about different experiences of mothering, we stay silent. And because we stay silent, what ends up happening is that other stories are not told because you're reinforced that you have to be happy. You have to put on a good face. You have to be the best cook. You have to keep your house clean. You have to make sure that you go to every single PTA meeting. You have to make sure that you are super mom, etc., cetera, et cetera. And it's traumatizing and it's painful and it's hurtful. So when there are chances to have hired help, I have been telling people, I said, advocate for yourself. And sometimes advocating for yourself means building a community that you originally didn't intend to, but this is where you are. And that means getting the hired help. That means speaking up and saying, I don't like it like this. I need it like this. Otherwise, you may be high functioning, depressed, and you don't even know it.
1: I asked Elizabeth to share her experience with the Colombian healthcare system.
0: I went to a number of doctors and specialists when I was living in Medellin, Colombia. I got LASIK on my eyes. I It's very important for me to be vigilant about my health. I have cancer in my family. I have lupus in my family. I have to be very intentional about my health. And that was one of the things that excited me about living in Medellin, Colombia, the ability to go to different doctors who have experiences from around the world and who actually will treat you like a human being and not a number. For example, one of the things that I was excited about was getting, this is going to sound very odd, but I'm just going to go ahead and put it out there. In the United States, in order to have a colonoscopy, you have to be 50 years old, or you have to have a referral based on family history or a particular issue that is going on in your body. I am not 50 years old. I'm 39. And I thought to myself, why should I wait until I'm 50 years old? I know that I have a familial history of cancer in my family. I know that there are some real health concerns and I want to be vigilant about it. So I got in contact with a primary doctor and I said, this is what I would like to do. He said, absolutely, let me refer you to the person that is the specialist. He does all of the gastrointestinal things. He's a wonderful doctor. Here's his information. And what's fascinating is that it's not as clinical, pun not intended, but intended. It's not as clinical that you can communicate with your doctor over WhatsApp and you can text each other and call each other as though you're not friends, but as though you really know each other. So I got in contact with the office, I scheduled my colonoscopy and I was really concerned that they were gonna say, you have to be 50 years old. or And I was also concerned that they were gonna say, it's going to cost $2,000. It was less than 200 bucks. I got the colonoscopy, everything went great, all great, wonderful things. And then I would get a text message from the doctor just checking in. I remember going to my doctor and saying, Hey, I would love to deal with this particular issue. The doctor would say, sure, no problem. Here's what you need to do oh, I don't need to come into the office. No, I'm going to go ahead and write you a script and get you the things that you need. Or, hey, I'm going to go ahead and let you know what you should be doing moving forward. And then we'll schedule a time to search again. Pediatrician was absolutely top tier and amazing. I was able to say, hey, my daughter has this particular issue. She would say, check for fever, check for this, tell me what the symptoms are, and let's go ahead and get you the help that you need. What I love the most about the medical care in Colombia versus the health care in the United States was the ability to always have access to my records and my documents after every single meeting, appointment, conversation that I had, it was documented and I received it immediately. If I went to the doctor, I got my results. It was printed out and it was given in my hand. And I was able to walk away and have full access to my records. I was able to have conversations with my doctors and ask questions that I did not feel comfortable. I still to this day, don't feel comfortable asking here because my concern, is this going to result in another Two month waits in order for me to get the information that I need. It is a different experience because you don't always have doctors showing up in a white coat and making it feel as medicinal, despite the fact that you're there for medical help. You have people actually caring for you, asking about your family, interested in your life, and providing you support that doesn't just come in a pill form. And I love that. That is not my experience in the United States as someone, again, who has family members who have been very sick with cancer and a number of autoimmune diseases. The experience is quite cold. It's, it's often that I would go with family members and I would say, can I ask more questions? And I would feel rushed through the process, or I would feel as though that my mother or my aunt or my father was just a number, or that they were just running, like it was a patient meal. They were just running through a bunch of patients and they had to just get it done. And that's it. And I think that, and not just, I think the research shows that there is a lot of concern and trust respective to a number of medical professionals in the United States. And I think it's, again, that lack of warmth. I think it's the lack of the community that is often needed and unknown that it's needed. And when you treat someone as though they're a member of your community and you treat them in a humane way, it changes the experience. It really does.
1: Elizabeth was able to negotiate a path for her to work remotely abroad for her company. And so I asked her, What was it like working abroad in Colombia?
0: Working abroad was a very interesting experience because I was deemed an employee of our office in Bogota. So I received all of the benefits that any employee would receive, any Colombian employee would receive. And it was so enriching. Because what's interesting about Colombia in particular is that wellness is built into the healthcare system and wellness is built into the benefits. So as an example, we would automatically receive access to CONFAMA, which is a particular park, different areas around the city and different places and different health benefits. We naturally and automatically received by virtue of being employed within the country. And so because CONFAMA is a part of wellness and because wellness is very important to me, now that I'm back in the United States, from a benefits and insurance standpoint, I feel like I'm, I've am i lost out. I feel as if I have, I'm in, I don't want to say I'm in lack, but there definitely is a difference because now it's all about medical dental vision, medical dental vision. And I'm like, what about the family? What about additional things? things that could help to support mental health? What about the things that could additionally support holistic 360 wellness? I know that there are some things that are there, but generally, no, it's very different. So professionally, I will say that I have not experienced too much of a difference. And that's in part because I worked for American companies that, although they have presence in other countries, by and large, I supported American clients. I have now transitioned into doing diversity, equity, and inclusion work 100% full-time. I'm very happy about that. And I will say being abroad and being very intentional and clear about what makes sense for me professionally made me recognize that I did not want to practice law. I don't want to practice law. I don't want to look at these contracts. I'm not interested in going back and forth over indemnification. This stuff doesn't fill my cup and it's boring. And so what I will say is that my eyes have been opened and that feels good. I'm able to now do the work that I like to do and that I'm good at, and that feels good. And so for that reason, being abroad and being able to work abroad and seeing the differences of what employees experience abroad, particularly in Colombia with their 22 federal holidays versus what we have here in the United States with our 11, 10, 11 federal holidays, it has been eye opening and has provided clarity to me that eventually I will be back outside of the United States.
1: Repatriation. It's such an interesting topic and one that we don't always discuss a lot, right? People are just like, oh, and then I went home. But it is such an it's such a nuanced experience, full of a lot of dynamic emotions, for sure. And so I asked Elizabeth to walk us through her and her family's repatriation experience.
0: Oh my goodness. Okay repatriating back to the United States. So the reasons I was still working with the global company that gave me the original thumbs up. I was working with that company. And when I was in Medellin, the first six months, I was there on what some people will call a tourist visa. As a citizen of the United States, you're allowed to be there for up to six months per calendar year without any visa. So, you go there, you're there for 90 days, you have to renew it, you're there for an additional 90 days, 180 days within the calendar year. So, that is how we originally entered the United States. And then the company sponsored my visa. They gave me a migrante visa. So, as a migrant, I had the right to work, I had the right to get insurance, benefits, all the wonderful things, the wellness incentives that naturally come to all employees of individuals that work for companies. Really stellar, wonderful experience. As I was working for the company, I discovered that I wanted to shift my career and go into a lot of the work that I was doing at the side of my desk. When I entered into Medellin, I was a transactional lawyer working in-house. And then I realized that because of the work that I was doing at the side of my desk, which was diversity, equity, and inclusion work was something that I wanted to broaden and expand and deepen my professional experience in, and also deepen my my knowledge in, I wanted to go in that direction full time. There wasn't an opportunity available at that current job to do that. And so I looked for another job. I ended up getting that other job and I worked for that job and I had an amazing experience. And while I was working for that job, I recognized, oh, your visa, <laughs> this first company covered your visa. So what are we going to do now about the second visa? So when that visa terminated once, so the rule is in Colombia is that if a company is covering you, once your job relationship is over. The visa is technically over almost immediately. However, you have 30 days to get up and out of the country. And so what I did was I had my 30 days to really think about what I'm going to do. I transitioned from one job to another job. And I said, this is what we'll do. We'll go back on the tourist visa. At that point, we're in our third year we were able to go back on the tourist visa. So we went back on the tourist visa. And during that six months, I knew that if I didn't figure out how to stay within the, com- the country, I would have to return to the United States. However, I felt that it was time to return to the United States. I did not want to return. I felt it, but I said nothing to my husband. I was like, I feel this. I feel this type of energetic push that it the door is going to close it's time to go back to United States and I was like I feel it but I'm not going to say nothing to him if he don't say nothing to me I'm just going to we're just going to live our best lives continuously a week after that thought my husband came to me he said for some reason I feel as though it's time for us to go back to United States and I was like oh hell I felt the same thing and I was like do you really feel he said like, I really do feel that and I said I feel the same thing and so because of that there was like this spiritual, energetic alignment respective to us needing to return to United States. And that's what we decided to do. And so it was not easy. We had to explain to our son that we were going back. He was not happy about that because he loved... Medellin. He loved the culture. He, the Paisas are known for their very warm, very welcoming way of being. And that was his experience. That was our experience. The schools welcomed him. They embraced him. So culturally, he loved it. He found himself being more Paisa than American. He would say that. He's, Oh, I'm, I'm a Paisa man. I'm a Paisa man. And I'm like, let's not. <laughs> but he would, he embraced it in such a way. And also, academically, it presented a problem for us because the school year starts in January in Medellin, and in the United States, the school year typically starts in the fall. So we decided, although the school year had just started, it's time for us to go back, and it's better for us to go back rather than dragging this out. And everything aligned because our lease was coming up. The school year just started. My son wasn't in school too long. And it just felt like it was the right thing to do. And that's what we did. We packed our things. Our lease ended. We moved. We sold a lot of things. And we returned to the United States to live in the Washington, D.C. area. It has not been easy. It has not been easy for us. It has not been easy for our family. We returned in February of 2022. And everything bothered me to be honest with you, everything bothered me. Uh, The food bothered me. I was like, why is everything fried? Why is everything smothered and and battered? Why is it that the people are so mean? I would go for a walk and I would say, hello, and people wouldn't part their lips and say anything back. And I'm like, y'all are just nasty. Like Y'all got no manners. It was very confusing to me to be back. And so we're still transitioning, to be honest with you, because we returned with just suitcases. We didn't return with furniture or anything else. So we are rebuilding from scratch. It is a journey. In part, it's a fun journey because I get to buy new furniture and set up my house in the way that I want but it is also very difficult. And in fact, because my mental health is so important to me that I've actually started therapy to help me manage some of the stresses and some of the moments of anxiety that I experienced by being back in the United States, by some of the things that I intentionally walked away from. I'm re-experiencing walking in a room and being the only, only being able to have a conversation with someone. And when you walk into the room and meet them for the first time from a telephone conversation, they say things like, Oh, I didn't know you were black or going places. And someone's asking, are you the paralegal? And you say, no, I'm the lawyer. It's those types of things that I'm still adjusting to. It does not feel good to be honest with you. I think this is the season that we have to be here and things have aligned in my family for us to be here, and. I'm happy that we are obedient and that we are here right now, but it has not been easy. And my son in particular, he is now getting to a point where he's acclimating to the schools here, but it was tough for him because he couldn't understand why the children weren't as friendly. He couldn't understand why kids were so mean. He couldn't understand why some of his words, some of the teachers were cold. It, It is different culturally. It is different behaviorally. We're still adjusting, but we recognize that we're here for this season and we're planning our next escape, if you will.
1: I asked Elizabeth, what is her personal definition of wellness and how did her time living in Medellin, Colombia influence that concept and practice of wellness for her?
0: My definition of wellness is explicit and implicit peace and joy when there is intentional actions and behaviors that allows the person to be at peace and to have joy in their their doings, joy in their thoughts, joy in their actions, joy in their relationships, joy in their day, joy in their evening, joy in in sitting down and having a glass of wine, joy in planning things. You don't always have to be happy, but you can have joy and you can be peaceful about it. And there can be peace all around you. And when you have that, that's wellness. I firmly believe that I would not know what wellness is had I not lived in Medellin, Colombia for three years. I would not know what it's like to be intentional about my health and have peace about that. I would not know what it's like to be financially strengthened and be able to walk through life in abundance. I would not know what it's like to have desires and be intentional about chasing those desires had I not lived abroad. Because when you are in an environment and you're in a culture that perpetuates nonstop hustle, that perpetuates fatigue, that perpetuates unspoken sadness and depression that perpetuates, put yourself last because you don't matter, that perpetuates all of the isms that weigh on many people, in particular women, that perpetuates this notion that you don't have a voice and you don't matter. You don't know better. It's all you see and it's normalized. And so because that was normalized for me for so many years, I didn't even know what I didn't know. But now that I've had an opportunity to see different, I can do different. I can be different. I can think different. I show up different. I speak differently. I expect different as well. And that feels good.
1: I asked Elizabeth to share with all of you a motto that she lives by, something that she holds on to to anchor herself within this experience of life. And this is what she shared.
0: So I always say the sun always rises tomorrow. And it's something that I tell myself if I have a really crappy day or if I have a moment where I expected things to go one way and it didn't, and I got disappointed. I tell myself the sun will always rise tomorrow because it's true. Literally, the sun will always rise tomorrow. There's a way for us to really think about how we continue to show up. And when you know that this is not the end, when you know that (laughs) until you are six feet under, you will always see the sun rising, that the sun will literally rise. It's something that I say, and it anchors me, And it has helped me manage anxiety. It has helped me to recognize that perfectionism is more of a curse than a blessing. And it's something that I heard my father say to me. And it's something that I say to my son as well. When he gets nervous and he wants this, he was like, honey, the sun will always rise tomorrow. We'll try again tomorrow. And that's okay.
1: Thank you so much, Elizabeth, for sharing your amazing story with all of us. I really appreciate it. If you want to keep up with Elizabeth, you can via social media.
0: Sure. Again, my name is Elizabeth. You can follow me on Instagram at WeResolveToWin. I am also on Twitter at WeResolveToWin. And I'm excited to support women. Thank you
1: all so much for listening to this episode of Flourish in the Foreign. And for more information about our guest, be sure to check out this episode's show notes on the website, theforeign.com That's where you'll see pictures, a full bio, and ways that you can connect with this guest. If you or someone you know may be interested in becoming a guest on this podcast, I invite you to submit the guest inquiry form, which you can find on the website, com slash contact. And as always, big thanks to Zachary Higgs, who produced the music of this here podcast. Remember, it's not about moving abroad. It's not about being abroad. It's about flourishing abroad. So, go abroad and cultivate a life well-lived. See you next time. On the next episode of Flourish in the Foreign. The thing that I credit Spain with
2: was me getting more in touch with my desires to be a writer, which was something that I had always dreamt of and thought about, and I loved writing, but Because of America, and I don't want to blame it on America, but it's just the way that our system worked. Um, The idea of being a writer didn't seem logical. It didn't seem like something that was an actual profession that I could pursue. Maybe a little hobby, but I couldn't say right out, like, well, I want to be a writer. But being in Spain, where I met so many other Europeans who were chasing their bliss, They were doing things that they wanted to do just because they loved them. And so during all those siesta times, sitting around with myself and my thoughts, I decided in Spain, my second semester there, I am going to be a writer. I'm going to try it. I'm going to do whatever I have to do to make that happen when I go back to the States because I love it and that's enough of a reason to pursue something.